Our reading from God's holy word this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, continuing to verse 7. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we read this word, and as we sit now in your presence, eager to hear the truth of this word delivered powerfully through the work of your spirit. We ask that you would now prepare our hearts, that you would meet with us in the way that you would wish for us to grow, the way that you would will for us to be conformed, to be shaped. We want the whole of our lives to be submitted to you. Father, hear that prayer. We want the whole of our lives to be submitted to you. Father, make more plain today the meaning of such a prayer, even from this text of Scripture, and train us to be a people who are humble and who live lives of care casting our anxieties upon you. Meet us. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was the year 1514. Pope Leo X, the vicar of the Roman church, was in need of money. Money to complete one of the most substantial building projects in human history, known as St. Peter's Cathedral. Some of you have probably visited St. Peter's Cathedral, and so you have a real appreciation for what it is we're talking about. It's an amazing sight. Albert of Brandenburg was an upstart priest, pastor, minister of sorts in the Germanies who, well, he had an angle on making his way up the ecclesiastical ladder. He saw something of an opportunity with the financial crisis that Pope Leo found himself in at the time, and so he struck a deal with him. He struck a deal that he would borrow from the Fugger Bank of Germany a substantial amount of money, money that would allow for the continuation of the construction project of St. Peter's. But if he was going to do that, maybe Pope Leo could do something for him. He wanted to be the Archbishopric of Mainz in Germany, one of the the high-ranking positions in the ecclesiastical structure in Germany at the time. And he needed a way to be able to pay the debt from the loan because he really didn't have the money. And so he asked Pope Leo, if you will appoint me to the Archbishopric of Mainz and if you will allow for this very creative fundraising campaign known as indulgences. 
then I'll get you the money you need even ahead of time. Pope Leo thought this was a great idea. Struck a deal with Albert of Brandenburg, and in 1514, uh, the continuation of the construction of St. Peter's, which had stalled because of money at that time, and Albert of Brandenburg brought into the archbishopric of the church there at Mainz, began this process of fundraising. Through a man who was known um, to have a little bit of um, musical advertising ability, a man by the name of Johann Tetzel, who would travel all over Germany over the next uh, eight years, because it was an eight-year window where the indulgences could be bought, would travel all over and would say to the people of God, if you purchase these indulgences, these, people, these pieces of paper, you can alleviate the suffering of your former forefathers and mothers and ancestors who right now are struggling in purgatory. If you buy the indulgences, you'll briefen their time there. You'll, you'll move them up the, the rings, as it were, to paradiso, or maybe even for yourself. You know, the, when the coin in the coffer rings... The soul from purgatory springs, said Johann Tetzel. Now, there was this other figure in history at this time who, well, let's just put it, put it bluntly, he didn't like this. He didn't like the underhanded, deceitful, political machinations of buying and selling of, of positions and churches and and even eternal merits. He was a 33-year-old Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther. Luther, at the word of this, deal struck, and the selling of indulgences began to pin what came to be known as the 95 Theses, which were really... Theological points of argumentation, or we might even say grievances, concerns and grievances that he brought to the church at Rome at that particular time. Luther actually made these grievances known to Albert of Brandenburg, um, previous to nailing them on the Wittenberg church door on October the 31st in 1517. Right at the very top of the grievances... The theses uh, that Luther nailed that began arguably one of the greatest revivals in all of human history known as the Reformation. Right at the very top of those theses, this is what you would read. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant that the entire life of the believer should be one of repentance. That the entire life of the believer should be one of repentance. On Wednesday night, a number of us gathered right here in the sanctuary to dialogue about a section out of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. A section that speaks directly about the need for spiritual preparation on a daily basis. 
In that section, uh, Lewis actually argued that we should, as people, as we wake up in the morning, we experience a rush of all of the demands of the day upon us. And he says the Christian is one who in his wisdom learns to push those things back. And before the pressures of the day come, go to the Lord. Because it's in going to the Lord where the day begins to take on an entirely different perspective. It's in learning that from the very moment your eyes awaken in the morning, you're going to need help. That today, in one sense, you're going to have to become a Christian again. You're going to have to remember and relive the things that somehow or another seeped out of you into the mattress at night. You're going to have to be reminded of the truths that you didn't forsake during the night, but you forgot. You need to be stirred up to your neediness. To be stirred up to the fact that even the best deeds that you ever do fall short of the glory of God. Not to mention the worst deeds that we do. Which means that there's never a point in our life where we are beyond the need of God's grace. And thus repentance is both the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Christian life. Luther, by starting the 95 Theses with this word of repentance, was teaching us something about the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. Some of you probably registered in your mind when I said 1517. We're in 2017. This is the year of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And throughout this year, in a variety of ways, we as a congregation will extol the beauty of the doctrine that was found in the Reformation, renew our commitments to the teachings and the practices that were recovered biblically in the Reformation. And one of the ways that we're doing that during this Lenten season is by focusing upon what we might rightfully call the first word of the Reformation, repentance. Because it was the very first word of the 95 Theses, which was the very first act that began in earnest this great revival known as the Reformation. Now, if you know much about repentance, and if you hear that word and you think, I don't even know what that means, stay tuned. Over the next six weeks, we're going to be unpacking it in both its, its challenges and struggles and in its glories. And what it means to become a community that is committed to daily repentance. But one of the things that you'll find in exploring the doctrine and the practice and the grace that is bound up in repentance is this. That every classic work whether it's Thomas Boston's Doctrine of Repentance or Sinclair Ferguson's newest work, The Grace of Repentance, beautiful works and many more on this subject, you'll find that one character quality is essential to the work of repentance. And it's one of the most elusive character qualities that there is. It's humility. It's humility. The reason humility is so difficult is that if you think you're humble, you're definitely not. And if you are humble, you wouldn't know it. So we're never quite sure. Which makes the need for humility in order to repent 
somewhat tricky. How do, we, how do we pursue this repentance? What is it? What can we expect to arise from it? And where does the fallow ground of humility, how is it born? So that repentance can really be had and experienced in the Christian life for the life that it's intending to give us. Peter here says, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. And, the, and one of the reasons... I chose this particular text to begin our journey into the Lenten season is because in verses 1 through 5 of 1 Peter 5, he's just charged elders to shepherd the flock of God. We're going to talk a lot about officers this morning. We're going to celebrate God's provision of shepherd leaders today. He's just in the first five verses of 1 Peter charged the elders to shepherd the flock of God. And what he has really challenged them to do is to die to self and live unto Christ for the life of God's church. That's what he's told them to do in summary form, which they cannot do, and we as God's people cannot do without humility. Without humility. So what would it look like for the elders and deacons of this local congregation, for every member of this local congregation to pursue, we might even say stumble after, humility? That's what we want to explore for a few minutes together today. We want to ask the questions, what is humility? What is it we're really talking about when we use that term? Then we want to ask the question, how does one become humble? How does that actually happen? And then thirdly, we want to ask, why would you even want to become humble? I mean, let's be honest. If you're going to read the leading headlines of people who are influential and successful, oftentimes, number one is not humble. You know, can-do spirit, self-confidence, never saw a task they couldn't accomplish, got the world by the tail, takes the world by storm. These are the kinds of things that are talked about, great and influential people. When we talk about humility, the world often thinks of it as something that must be overcome, while the church believes it's something that must be cultivated and must be pursued. Why such a stark difference? What is humility? How does one become humble and why would you want to be? Let's start with what is humility. Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. That little word, therefore, means that Peter here in verse 6 is drawing a conclusion. And the conclusion he's drawing is a command. This humble yourselves is in the imperative. The conclusion he's drawing is that humility is what you ought to pursue. Why does he draw that conclusion? Well, if you have your Bibles open, or if you want to look on with me with your pew Bible that you'll find right in front of you, you'll look at verse 5, the, just the previous verse, and we actually understand, okay, here's why we need to humble ourselves. Look at what Peter says. Verse 5, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Oh, that's the reason. I want you to think of how strong that he's saying this as he's quoting from James and pulling from Psalm 55. He's saying, if you are prideful, you set yourself at odds with God himself. The words that he uses here of opposition is the notion of an enemy. 
If you are prideful, it's as if you have made yourself an enemy of God. In contrast, however, if you desire grace from God, you better be humble. You must be humble. Humble is the precondition for the receiving of grace. It's the precondition for the receiving of grace. It is, we might say, the necessary character of soul that you need for the reception of grace. Why is that the case? Why is that the, why is that the case? Well, well, let's think about it. In order to define humility, one of the easiest ways to do that is to begin to define pride. Because here's what I find. Pride is something we get a lot faster than humility. You start talking about pride and go, oh yeah, yeah, oh, that, that makes total sense. Humility, you start describing and go, I wonder what that's like. We don't have as much intimate connection with humility. So if we start with pride, it begins to help build a, an understanding for what we're talking about when we're talking about humility. And I want to just give you a one-sentence definition of, of pride and then unpack a couple of things. This is pride. Pride is being full of Reliant on, motivated by, and glorying in self. Let me say that again. Pride is being full of, reliant on, motivated by, and glorying in self. Why do I give those four qualifications? Well, let's think about it. Full of self. You know, that's how we actually... Say it. When we see someone a little big for their britches, you know what I'm saying? Someone who thinks they're just a little too cool for school. We say they are so full of themselves. We mean to say that they can't get out of the way of themselves. They're stumbling over themselves, whether they're meeting people or doing things. Everything is a reference point to them. It's full of themselves. Now, if you're full of yourself, here's the necessary implication. You're going to be reliant upon yourself. You're going to look to yourself as the foundation for your life. And you are going to seek to do everything on your own. And here's, here's the false understanding underneath that. You're going to think you can do everything on your own. You're going to seek to do everything on your own because you think you can do everything on your own. You're reliant upon yourself because you're full of yourself. And of course, if you're... Full of yourself and relying on yourself, you're motivated by self. It makes complete sense. The internal driver of your life is self. When you're meeting a new person, you think, I wonder how this person's going to help me. If you're thinking about uniting to an organization, what benefit would I get from it? You walk through life being driven, energized, motivated by personal benefit. And thus, at the end, you're ultimately glorying in self. The end for which you live the world, the whole of your existence, ultimately comes back to you. Uh, let me tell you how this works biblically by turning a scripture on its head. Romans eleven thirty three. 33. Some of you will know this is Paul's statement of doxology, his statement of worship, when he is just overwhelmed at the goodness and the glory of God. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, here's the scriptures according to a person of pride. For from self and through self 
and to self, or all things to self, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's, it's the same structure. It's full of self, relying on self, motivated by self, glorying in self, rather than full of God, relying on God, motivated by God, glorying in God, which is what Paul is giving us there in Romans eleven thirty three. It is, in a word, self-idolatry. It is, in a word, self-idolatry. It's an attempt to replace ourself, to put ourself on the throne room of our heart, in the throne room of our heart, on the throne of our heart, and occupy a place that we were never intended to occupy, a place only for God. Jesus describes it, he illustrates it, in Matthew chapter 23. And he uses, not surprisingly, religious professionals to illustrate what pride is all about. Matthew 23, 6-8, he says this of the Pharisees and the scribes, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. That's a scary but very truthful display of what it means to be someone who is full of pride. What Peter is saying is to the degree that that's true of you, to that degree you are opposed to God. And God is opposed to you. To that degree you make yourself at distance with the Lord. To that degree you've set yourself up as a rival to the Lord. So let me personalize it for a minute. Do you want to destroy your intimacy with the Lord? Do you want to nullify the grace and its transformation in the course of your life given to pride? God will oppose it. Do you want to grow in intimacy with the Lord? Do you want to experience ever deeper degrees of the transformation that comes in the grace of the Lord? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. In, in other words, find your place. Find your place. The place in which he has given you. Humility, you see, is, is not, as is sometimes conceived, thinking really lowly of yourself. You know, it's often the people who think so lowly of themselves that are still so obsessed with themselves. Themselves are still the reference point for their life. Whether you're thinking high of yourself or low of yourself, you're thinking of yourself. Humility is actually self-forgetfulness. It's when you're in conversation with someone and you quit doing the internal dialogue of wondering what they're thinking about you and how are you coming across and are you convincing them of what you want to convince them of and will they walk away thinking nice thoughts about you and thus not enjoying but actually exhausting yourself in the midst of the conversation because you're not operating from a place of humility, you're operating from a place of pride. The whole conversation was a reference point about you. Or serving in the church or serving in the community and doing it from a place that says, I hope people see this. I hope people praise this. I, I hope people will write about this. 
Uh, actually, glory stealing from God. That's what pride does. Is it, is it puts ourselves in the place of him rather than being motivated by the love of God. And as Isaac Watts actually suggests us to do, to get away with the lowest and to get away with the most obscure position of service that we can. You see, that's the fundamental difference between pride and humility. And so the question is, how does one really become humble? Wouldn't it be, I want you to just explain just experience this for a moment. What would it be like to forget yourself? I mean, think about it. You know? How consumed are we with our thoughts and our feelings and our actions? And I mean, we're like the sun that the world orbits around inside of our heads. What would it be like for that to be gone? Or at least, by God's grace, more and more free? How do we pursue what it means to be humble? Two things Peter tells us. Two things. He says, the first is you've got to embrace your position before God. He says it, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now that description of the mighty hand of God, some of you, because you're, you're very bright, you know your Bibles, know that that comes, that phrase comes out of Exodus and Deuteronomy multiple times. That phrase, the mighty hand of God, is almost always attached to great acts of wonder and events of redemptive history that God himself has accomplished. Sending ten plagues into Egypt and parting the Red Sea and raining bread from heaven and water flowing from a rock and, and all of the amazing mighty acts from the right hand of God. That phrase, Peter is saying, when you realize who God is and you see him and you begin to understand who he is, you find your place of humility before him. Let's put it this way. When God rains bread from heaven, it becomes really clear that you're not God. It just becomes really clear. When he parts a massive sea and you walk across and there's walls of water on the left and the right, you go, yep, can't do this. Yep. That experience of I'm really under the mighty hand of God. We talked about it a few weeks ago as the feeling of the fear of the Lord, the experience of the fear of the Lord, what some of the older theologians called a numinous, this idea of an awe that would strike upon the soul. It's a position that we must occupy in our hearts. The problem is we lose that in our normal daily life. It gets shook out of us. And we really think it's about the stuff we're doing. And thus we ascend the ladder of supremacy in our own minds and our hearts. And God begins to descend. When in fact our hearts must be like John the Baptist's. That we must decrease and he must ever increase. We must learn to occupy the position of humility before the mighty hand of God. But that's not really the focus of Peter here. The focus of Peter is verse 7. And what you find is that as you position yourself under the mighty hand of God, there's a practice that begins to develop. And this practice begins to humble you. He says in verse 7, Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 
Now, in some of your translations, depending on which translations you're using or a Bible that you're using, that may appear as a new sentence. It's not a new sentence in the Greek. It's a sub- Let me be, can I be an English teacher for just a second? I know, I know. We're going to diagram a sentence for back in fourth grade. This is important. The casting all your anxieties upon him is a modifying phrase for humble yourself. How do you, how do you pursue humility? Cast your anxieties upon him and he cares for you. That's how you pursue humility. That's the how. We've talked about the what is humility. Here's the how of to pursue it. You've got to cast your anxieties upon him. Now, what are your anxieties? Well, the anxieties are the things, of course, you worry about. What are the things that you worry about? They're the things that matter most to you. Right? It's the things, if I can put it this way, it's the things that is your life or you perceive to be your life. It's your children. It's your health. It's your money. It's your future. That's the stuff, right? That's the stuff. That's the stuff that you get anxious about. That's the stuff that you worry about. That's the stuff that your mind is constantly going crazy about. Your anxieties. Those are the things where we often locate life. And so when he says... He says, cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. He is in a very real sense saying, cast your life upon him because he cares for you. Cast everything that is you upon him. Throw the whole lot of who you are into him. That's what he's saying here in verse 7. He's saying, as you do that, you know what begins to happen? You begin to be humbled. You begin to be humble. Now, how does that work? Well, some of us might rightly say through prayer, right? Philippians 4, 6 through 7 tells us, be anxious for nothing but in everything, right? By prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. Similar point being made here, prayer. But let me, let me push on that just a little bit. How many times have you been eaten up with anxiety and worry and you've gone, I need to go to my Bible and I need to pray? You go to your Bible and you pray, and you leave your Bible in prayer, and you're still eating up with anxiety, right? I'm not alone, right? right? Okay, I'm just making sure, making sure. That happens, that happens. And so somehow or another, the means didn't necessarily achieve the expected end in the moment where we went to prayer and we went to the Word of God. And the reason that happens is because sometimes in our prayer, we're not actually casting anything towards the Lord, but we're talking to the Lord about what we want to keep right here. And we just like him to make us really strong and keep holding it. Lord, give me strength so that I can get through today. (laughs) What? (laughs) Lord, there's no way I can hold this. There's no way I can hold this. There's no way I can get through today. You've got to carry this. And you can only carry this through the power of the Spirit that is within me. This is not, but praise be to God, it's not mine to carry, it's yours to carry. See how fundamentally different that kind of prayer is? See how the focus is turned not about on me being strong to carry, but on him strong enough to carry? It's a completely different orientation in prayer. What often happens in the midst of prayer is we're talking about the stuff that's heavy, we're not actually giving it away. We're not actually casting it. 
towards the Lord. How do you know if you actually begin to cast it towards the Lord? Three quick points as we draw to a close. There's a transfer that needs to happen in the midst of that prayer. And I'd like to suggest there are three things that have got to happen. In the midst of that prayer, and this is a spiritual gift, the Holy Spirit's got to give this, but how do we pursue it? Okay? The Spirit of God's got to meet us, but how do we pursue it? Here's how we pursue it. There's got to be a transfer of faith that happens in the midst of that prayer. A faith in self to a faith in God. Now that mirrors what we talked about earlier with regards to pride. We've got to say, Lord, I have faith in you rather than faith in me. When we're approaching an issue, a lot of times how we pray is, Lord, I want you to give me the resources I need to be able to do the things that I need to do that I know will glorify you. And again, it's still about, rather than saying, Lord, I know there are no resources that could be given to me to bear this to the degree that it needs to be bore. So you've got to lift me up in you. You've got to carry that load. And I believe that you can do it so much better than me. I sincerely believe that only you can be the strength. Only you can be the strength. You see, when we often pray, we pray, don't we? We pray when we've exhausted our resources. You know? It's like, okay, got this big issue. I'm going to throw everything at it. That didn't work. I guess I'll pray. Right? And then we pray and we go, give me more resources. Rather than just go, Father, that's yours. I believe you can carry that. I believe you can carry that. Now, that does not mean that you won't have a responsibility in the carrying. <laughs> but there's a fundamental difference between transferring the weight from you to him in the midst of that prayer. One is to say, I'm going to muscle up. And the other is to say, I'm going to give this up to you. And fascinatingly, when you give this up to him, the load is lightened. Truly. It's fascinating that Christ says, take up your cross daily. And then says, my yoke is easy. And my load is light. How is that possible? It's only possible if he's carrying it in you and through you. Because you're in union with him. A transfer of faith has to happen. But here's another thing. Transfer of hope has to happen in the midst of that prayer. From hope in self to hope in, in God. What do I mean by that? Hope is your future. <laughs> a lot of times when we're praying, it's about something in the future, some hope we have, some aspiration, some wish, some goal, some desire, some aim. And it's scary. Let me tell you, it's very scary to give, actually cast that to God. You know why it's scary? Because he might do something with it you don't want him to do. So a lot of it is, Lord, here are my hopes and my dreams. I'd love for you to fulfill them. Right? But you're keeping all the hope right here. It's right here. I'd just love for you to do something with these hopes. I love these. And he's saying, cast those to me. Why do you want them? You know, people who have done that have died. 
People who do that sometimes sell their homes and move to foreign countries to become missionaries. And you, you might do something weird with my hopes. It's really scary to cast the hopes. I might have to pray a prayer like, Thy will be done and mean it. That's a fundamentally different thing. So sometimes in the midst of prayer, there's not been a transfer of hope. You've not been relinquished into the future that is God's for you and for his glory. You're still holding a bit of the weight of that hope and asking him for the strength to fulfill it. All right? There's got to be a transfer of hope. And finally, you're not going to transfer the faith to God. You're not going to transfer the hope to God if you don't have a transfer of love. Um, transfer of the love of self to the love of God. That, <laughs> do you see what I'm doing? This is 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. But what? The greatest of these is love. Do you, do you know when you will sacrifice? When you love someone. You know, it's, it's crazy what parents will do for kids. Crazy stuff. I say that as a parent. And there are things that you're willing to do for your kids that you wouldn't be willing to do for almost anybody else. Why? Because you love them. You love them. Now, the realization is, when you love God more than self, You'll be willing to trust God more than yourself. And you'll want God's future more than your future. Because your future is not yours. And your life is not yours. But it is hidden in Christ with God. Your life is God. He is the utter center of who it is that you live for. And your every heartbeat is to love him and to pursue him. Then, when that's beating in your soul. It's at that point that the transfers begin to really bubble up in your soul that you're willing to say, Lord, I want you to, don't you want to be at a place and make this your goal to pray faithfully this, Lord, whatever it is you want, that's what I want. Whatever it is you want, whatever it is you want to do, that's what I want. And Lord, when I don't want what it is that you want, change me and make me want what it is that you want. And when I am asking selfishly and with conceit and with manipulation. Don't listen to me. But listen to your heart for me and for your people. That's a bold prayer. And he might, he might just do something with that. Now, how are you ever going to transfer faith, transfer hope, transfer love? Well, unless you believe what Peter says at the final section of verse 7. Cast all your anxieties upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. Now, parents in here, yeah, I mentioned this, but this is true of friends and all of our other relationships. You do anything for your kids. You do anything for your, those in whom you love, right? When you're, when you're most sane, you would. Now, you're going to battle that. But when you're most clear... In the gospel, that's true. What Peter is actually saying 
is that you can cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because he is the father to you, the child. And he is willing to do anything for you because he loves you so much. You can utterly transfer all faith to him. You can utterly transfer all hope for him. Why? Because he cares for you. And how does he care for you? <laughs> oh, He cares for you so much that he is willing to humble himself for you. We could make a strong argument that the only person in the entirety of the universe who should not be humble is God. And he is the only person in the universe who has utterly humbled himself out of love and care for you. Even to the point of death, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, even death on a cross. He humbled himself by becoming a man, walking through life, a life of suffering and of sorrow, a life of temptation and resisting it, a life of rejection, a life of receiving the wrath of God on the behalf of our sins. He humbled himself because he cares for you. He wanted to completely wipe the slate clean that would keep you forever in your pride and distanced from the Lord. He wanted to remove it, completely remove it. So he was willing, the highest being in all of universe was willing to go to depths that you and I can't even scarcely imagine. And our return favor is to put ourselves on the throne room of our lives. Do you see, when you begin to know your position, you begin to practice casting your anxieties upon him, you're going to be able to do it because you, you believe that he cares for you. Do you believe that your life is better in his hands than your own? Really? Then what in your life manifests evidence that that is true? That's the second question. What do you look at that says, that's true, that's true about the way I'm functioning? And if... There's one person in here who answers affirmatively, let's talk. Because there's not a one of us that does that perfectly. But would you love to pursue that with all of your heart? Would you love that to be more true of you at this time next year? At this time six weeks from now? Do you feel the, the tinge, the pain, maybe even the piercing of guilt? recognizing the immensity of his care for you and recognizing that much of your life has lived in care for you and not for him. If you do, repent. Repent. And when you do this again tomorrow, repent. Repent. Until the day where you see him face to face and the fullness of his desires for you will be full within you. No division, no pride, fullness of faith, hope, and love. Repent and follow Jesus. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, humble us in your sight.
that you might exalt us in the proper time. We want to know you and love you and serve you. Would you please reveal your grace to us now as we humble ourselves in confession?